Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For 10 years, a kind of quasi-civilian rule in Myanmar led to foreign investment, sharp growth, and a rising middle class. Then, one year ago today, all that stopped when the military snatched power again. We examine the ensuing, unceasing unrest. And it's not easy for immigrants who try to hang on to their native language, and losing it can leave them feeling bereft. We ask about the means and the merits of keeping in practice and how to recover a forgotten tongue later on. But first... Firstly, I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply didn't get right, and also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. And it's no use... Once again, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has found himself apologising in Britain's Parliament. This is a moment when we must look at ourselves in the mirror and we must learn. Yesterday, Sue Gray, a civil servant in charge of investigating allegations that Mr Johnson and others partied away while the country was in lockdown, published her report. Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, once again found himself condemning the Prime Minister. By routinely breaking the rules he set, the Prime Minister took us all for fools. He held people sacrificing contempt. He showed himself unfit for office. Mr Johnson's own party piled in too, including, perhaps most damagingly, former Prime Minister Theresa May. So either my right honourable friend had not read the rules, or didn't understand what they meant and others around him, or they didn't think the rules applied to number 10. Which was it? Ms Gray's investigation has reportedly been thorough and complete, but so far the report is not. She's been handing over her findings to the Metropolitan Police, which asked for sections to be withheld while its investigations continue. We had a a bundle of material provided to us just Friday, um, which is well over 500 uh, pieces of paper, about a ream and a half uh, we received, and uh, over 300 photographs. Those inquiries may bring more revelations. The full version of Ms Gray's report might have a few more. For now, there's enough to suspect that, amid all the indignation, Mr Johnson may once again escape with his job. It was a damaging report. Sue Gray, a senior civil servant, found that, quote, there was a serious failure to observe not just the high standards expected of those working at the heart of government, but also the standards expected of the entire British population at the time. Matthew Holhouse is our British politics correspondent. In short, most of Britain was observing a very, very strict lockdown and paying quite a high price to do so. And at the same time, it seems that the people in and around Downing Street were not and were drinking and carousing. And so what exactly is in the report? 
So the report outlines what we've known through dribs and drabs of press reports for some time, but it lays it all out. There were 16 events under investigation. There is sufficient evidence for the Metropolitan Police to be now investigating 12 of those. Because they're under police investigation, Gray was forced to make only minimal reference to them. So she doesn't dig into the individuals or or who drank what where. But she can say at this point that there are failures of leadership and judgment, that some of the events should not have been allowed to take place and they should not have been allowed to develop as they did. So reading between the lines, you know, she's basically come to the conclusion that there's enough evidence to say that these events were, in effect, a a breach of the rules that were in place at the time. It also included the quite important fact that the police are investigating a gathering which took place in the Downing Street flat where Mr Johnson lives on the evening on which his former aide, Dominic Cummings, left office. And you say that a lot of this is now in the hands of the Metropolitan Police. Is that to say there's there's more to come? What can we expect from that? So yesterday's report was actually described as an update. Gray is clear that this isn't the end of the story. So we, we await a full and comprehensive report from Gray. At the same time, the police investigation carries on into these 12 events, which, which appear to have met the, the threshold for investigation, four of which Johnson was said to have attended. Now, the Met said yesterday that they have a wealth of evidence. It is said that the Met will be interviewing the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's wife. So you know, th- this, is, this is very much an unexploded bomb under his premiership. It hasn't gone away. Now, now the consequences in law are, are relatively minor in, in that the penalty for breaking lockdown is fines. But obviously, a finding, were it ever to come, that the Prime Minister had had breached the law during lockdown would would be potentially very, very great for him. And suppose the police come out with more damning revelations, or indeed revelations come from any other quarter. What options would the Conservative Party have then? Under the Conservative Party rules, a confidence ballot is triggered when 15% of MPs send in letters of no confidence to the chair of the 1922 committee. That's 54 letters. We're, We're far from that, yet it would seem... Then all of MPs vote in that ballot. It's a simple majority required to expel him or or make him step down. So that would be 181 that the the rebels would need. And that can happen all very, very quickly. You know, once once the threshold of 54 letters is met, a, a ballot can take place really on the same day. If Johnson were to win that, he cannot be challenged in a ballot for another year. And if he were to lose, then obviously the, the hunt would begin for a new prime minister. And as things stand now, what's your guess about that sooner or later there being a confidence vote and and some real peril for the Prime Minister? I've always thought that the talk of confidence vote has been slightly overblown simply because the Conservative Party is not as ruthless as it is often described as being and, and its ability to soak up poor performance is much higher than people often think. And the Prime Minister has been on a big charm offensive to assuage his party and convince them that he's a reformed character and that he's very sorry and it won't happen again. So he offered a series of reforms last night, including a new civil service structure in Downing Street and a promise to listen to his backbenchers and a new code of conduct for special advisers so that they know in future not to drink heavily during lockdown. There's also what's been dubbed by Downing Street as Operation Red Meat, a series of crowd-pleasing policies such as uh, promising to reform the funding arrangements for the BBC and a crackdown on irregular migration of people coming across in, in boats over the English Channel. And that seems to have had its effect. The Conservative Party once again has stepped back from the brink and, and giving him you know, one more chance. 
But meanwhile, the British government has been rather preoccupied with all this and seems to be fairly paralyzed. There was a call with Vladimir Putin scheduled that's been delayed. The the domestic agenda, the leveling up and all of that that we've spoken about before seems to be just in stasis. What do you think it means for Britain in, in the round that all of this is just rattling on? This does present quite a large exposure of of deficiencies across the British government. We know, for example, that the civil service appears to have let itself down by becoming implicated in these events. We know, for example, that it was senior civil servants who were instigating some of these events which are now under investigation. The Metropolitan Police has been damaged by the affair because for a long time they said they wouldn't investigate. And then their announcement that they would investigate appears to have sort of derailed the timing of Gray's report. And the press obviously has had a huge role in exposing these events and being fairly relentless in in driving at them. But at the same time, there were senior Downing Street officials who went on to go and work at tabloid newspapers who were implicated in the event. So there's a bit of a revolving door there. So the whole affair is not great for trust in the British establishment, as it were, or in, in the ability of the top ranks of British society to police themselves. And of course, alongside that, we, we have a prime minister that seems to get embroiled in scandal after scandal and emerge largely unscathed. Yes, the reason this has been damaging is obviously it comes on a long succession of misdemeanors and breaches on the face of it of the rules. British politics, to a large extent, relies on shame to function and honour. The country still functions on what was once dubbed the good chap theory of government, the idea that rather than the very hard constraints on the behaviour of ministers and prime ministers, you have invisible lines and expectations of conduct. And those are ultimately policed by the prime minister himself. So the absence of these legal constraints requires an abundance of personal restraint. And Boris Johnson does not have that sense of personal restraint. The ministerial code, which lays down the ethical rules for government, is ultimately enforced and interpreted by the prime minister himself. At the same time, the ultimate backstop on this in a parliamentary system are MPs. It is they who have the power to fire Mr. Johnson. And from what we saw yesterday, the Conservative Party is going to stick with Mr. Johnson for as long as they think that he is the party's best bet for staying in power. Matthew, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. One year ago today, Aung San Suu Kyi, the longtime leader of Myanmar's ruling National League for Democracy, was replaced by a military junta in a series of pre-dawn raids. In the time since they seized power, the coup makers have used heavy-handed tactics to control the country, but have so far been unable to rein in public opposition. This morning, demonstrators hit the streets in Yangon, their calls for an end to military rule falling again on deaf ears. Myanmar's generals have a long history of misreading the public mood. When they seized power 12 months ago, they expected there to be a few protests, but by and large, they thought the country would fall in line pretty quickly. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent. 
That is far from what happened. Almost the entire country has risen in opposition to this coup. There have been mass protests. There have been insurrections across swaths of the country. How has the military responded to this? In the most brutal fashion possible. It has massacred protesters. It has razed towns. Soldiers set fire to several vehicles on Christmas Eve and watched as 30 people inside them burned to death. In total, the Juntas forces have killed nearly 1,500 civilians since the coup. And is that working to consolidate their power to cow everybody even now a year later? Not at all. And this is another example of just how badly the Junta understands the people. The army is now fighting a military conflict that it never expected to fight. And there are multiple actors involved. There are some established ethnic rebel groups in the fringes of the country that have resumed fighting the army. And then in the central lowlands, and indeed in the cities as well, Bamars, the ethnic majority group, have also taken to fighting against the army. In the countryside, scores of Bamar militias have formed and are taking the military on. And in the cities, these underground cells have formed. The junta does not have the momentum. It's unable to pick its battles. It's not attracting new recruits, and it has fundamentally alienated the Burmese public. In the territory that it does control, the junta can hardly govern. Civil servants have left the government in the hundreds of thousands, most of them in support of the ousted government. And the local administrators that it has hired to replace the officials who've gone on strike are being assassinated by the resistance. And I suppose in the meantime, the economy has ground to a halt. Yeah, employment has tumbled. Dollar-day poverty has more than doubled to include half the population. And in cities, it's actually tripled. The currency has plunged by nearly two-thirds in the past five months. And the World Bank thinks that the economy is 30% smaller than it would have been if the coup and the pandemic haven't happened. And so the effects of all this are disastrous for the Burmese public. Electricity blackouts are widespread. Schools have, in effect, been shut for the last two years. And unsurprisingly, foreign investors are getting cold feet and have been rapidly divesting. One after another are going. Total Energies, Chevron, Woodside Petroleum have all decided to leave. Is there any plausible opposition to the generals that they might get somewhere? There is. Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, is certainly not out of the picture. Since the coup, they formed a shadow government, the National Unity Government, or NUG. And the NUG has really taken pains to patch up relations with ethnic minority groups who felt aggrieved by the way they were treated by Suu Kyi and her party. They have been far more inclusive, bringing ethnic minorities into the fold. And I spoke to a deputy minister in the NUG who really embodies this new face of opposition politics in Myanmar. Martin Ong is a 38-year-old member of the Kachin ethnic minority group. And he said that the opposition has changed. We have entered into a new era of politics in Myanmar because previously, whether we like it or not, you know, we are too reliant on 
Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, as the icon of democratic force. And this shift has taken place not just at the political level, but at the grassroots level. There's been this outpouring of remorse for the treatment of ethnic minorities in the past. And there's just far more sympathy for these groups now that they themselves have felt the ire of the military. And as a result of this shift, four ethnic minority rebel groups are now collaborating with the NUG. They provided safe haven to their politicians fleeing the army. They've nominated members to the NUG, are engaged in negotiations about a new constitution. An analyst I spoke to, Kim Jolif, said that this degree of collaboration between Bamars and ethnic minorities in a popular democratic movement is unprecedented in the country's history. And what about the international dimension of this? What does all of this mean for the region? Tens of thousands of refugees are pouring into Myanmar's neighbors, Thailand and India. Drugs are also flowing over the borders. The trouble is Myanmar's neighbors are deeply ambivalent about how to respond. Thailand is currently governed by a junta. It sort of has no interest in seeing the generals and the country next door toppled. India is worried about China's growing influence in the region. So it is continuing to send weapons to Myanmar's military. China's stance is more complicated. It has numerous investments in Myanmar, for instance, a really important oil and gas pipeline that it would like to see protected. And since the coup, resistance forces have been attacking those investments. China has asked the junta to protect these investments and the junta is incapable of doing so. So it is thought to be working behind the scenes, encouraging the generals to release Aung San Suu Kyi and come to the negotiating table. And what about beyond the regional powers? What can the wider international community be doing here? The options available to the international community are limited, but they're certainly not helpless. So America and Europe have placed sanctions on the military's top generals, the companies they control, and some state enterprises. They should also target the state agency that collects revenue from oil and gas companies. This industry is the regime's biggest source of foreign currency. And were it to be sanctioned, that would really hurt. Firms with links to the junta, of course, should divest. And I think there's a strong case to be made that ASEAN, the club of Southeast Asian nations of which Myanmar is a member, should go so far as to suspend Myanmar's membership. Thanks very much for joining us, Charlie. Thank you, Jason. I left Czechoslovakia when I was not quite two years old. So until that point, that had been the only language I was exposed to. And then for the next two years, my family kind of rattled around Europe. So I was exposed to some German and some Italian, and then arrived in Canada just a few days short of my fourth birthday. In her book, Memory Speaks, author Julie Sedevi recounts the moment she realized she was losing her first language, Czech. It's hard to pin down exactly when I realized that uh, I was starting to lose my check. It was really kind of a gradual process. I think I became aware of it more and more through my adolescence when it became clear that having complicated conversations was becoming increasingly difficult. These experiences are common. Abisoye Oshindairo is an assistant producer on The Intelligence. When I was 18 months old, I spent six months in Nigeria. And during that time, I stayed with my grandparents who only spoke to me in Yoruba. And up until a couple years ago, I always thought I had never spoken Yoruba, but could only understand it. 
But I had a conversation with my mum and she told me that when I came back to the UK, I was speaking in the language. And when she mentioned this to me, I had mixed emotions, mainly because I was happy that there was a time I could speak the language confidently. But I was also embarrassed that that part of me had been lost. When children move to a new country, they use their extraordinarily plastic brains to learn the language of the new country with what seems like astonishing speed. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. Before long, that new language really seems to promise acceptance and friendship and opportunities, while the parents' language can often start to, as much as I hate to say it, seem a little irrelevant. Uh, The kids can be embarrassed to use it in public because it's something that only, in their experience, old people from very far away use. Uh, Parents will often have the experience of speaking the family language to their children only to be answered in the new language of the new country. And the children, unfortunately, can start to see their parents as sort of out of touch, uh, struggling to complete even the most basic kind of public and bureaucratic tasks because the parents struggle with that new language in the new country. So why is it, though, that, that, that kids have this tendency to, to develop those, those feelings? Children really yearn desperately to fit in in their social group. And this means not only learning the new language, but often avoiding anything that sets them apart, including speaking their old language. Uh, Unfortunately, children can be very bigoted little creatures sometimes. Uh, Research has shown, and quite famously or infamously, that already at the age of five, children say that they uh, have a preference for a sort of hypothetical playmate when given different opportunities for a playmate of their own race. And they also uh, prefer friends in this hypothetical situation who speak only their language. So, Lane, what what should someone do to try to retain a language in that situation, the one where you end up in a new place and not speaking your, your, let's say, mother tongue? Keeping an immigrant language going robustly in a family once it's been uprooted from its old environment is hard, but it is possible. Um, Ideally, it really requires a continual and really rich and varied input throughout a child's life, not just the parents' voices, but also friends or activities, experiences. Kids who read in their language often have stronger skills because they get the mutually reinforcing two forms of the language, the written one and the spoken one. And of course, nowadays, it's much more possible to support a child's language with uh, audio and video content in the language because there's so much available online. But the good news is that while the language may not be as available as it once had been, with time and exposure, uh, it can be reactivated or in some cases really relearned. But that relearning goes a lot faster than if the same person was starting the language from scratch with no background in it. And I suppose that learning would be unnecessary if, if someone hadn't lost their language in the first place. I mean, how can people be encouraged to retain their native tongue when they move? One of the things they can do to keep the old one going is, for example, just showing some symbolic support in schools. So letting children, for example, do a, a book report about a book they've read in their home language. Or they can write a Mother's Day poem in their uh, in their mother's language and, and then translate it for the class, for example. Um, and these may be small things, and they are, but the the symbolic gesture of welcoming that language can often make the child realize that having a second language isn't cutting their personality in half and they need to choose one side or the other, but it's rather a bonus. You get English and all that that gives you in your new country while also having this kind of superpower of a second language as well. Lane, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. 
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.